you know, I'm going to do something, and you guys aren't prepared for this either up there, but I'm, I'm, I just feel like I want to read this scripture. I'm in Matthew 13, and we're at the last story, so I want you to hear how it flows. It's Matthew 13, and I'm kind of sad to leave these stories that Jesus is in telling in these, in these chapters and to move on, but um, in another sense, I think it's, it's really kind of exciting because Jesus has been talking about this kingdom now that he's, gonna, that he's, that he's brought and then begins, Matthew begins to share with us um, how people respond. And I've titled this next series, Your Life Scripts. And, and we'll be looking at that. But let me just read to you in verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, his disciples replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And that's how Matthew ends this teaching section. Father, we pray that you would take and allow for us as we look at your word now to have hearts that are open and soft, that, God, you might use these things which your son, Jesus, has said in such a way, Father, that that our hearts would hear from you. Whatever it is that is in our need right now, I pray, God, that your voice would speak. I pray for your presence to come here. Come, Holy Spirit. And speak, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when my girls were young, I ran across and actually purchased um, this book, which is called The Complete Unabridged Edition of the Brothers Grimm's Fairy Tales. And I was kind of excited about it because I was all excited to kind of read to my girls and to share with them some stories. And I thought this would be some good stories in here just filled with, um, I guess, some 215 fairy tales that they had collected, the Brothers Grimm's, and, and they published them. And they put them in this unabridged storybook. And I picked out one that was rather familiar, and I started reading it to him. And I remember as I began to read it to him, it was rather grotesque. It was rather violent. And I thought to myself as I read it, I was actually rewriting it or re-speaking um, it, toning it down. Ever done something like that where you're starting to read and you have to kind of change it because you're kind of going, oh, this is going to scare them to pieces. And this, is, this is before all the parental ratings. In fact, they probably should have put on here R for violence and gruesomeness. I'm thinking... Come on, these are just kids' stories. Well, there's a number of reasons why these adorable fairy tales, which were unabridged and told as they once were, not cleaned up for like we have them today. The reason they were like that is because back then, life was really raw. There was not this sterilized kind of approach to living that we have today. I mean, they saw... Wounds and, and they saw deformities and, and they saw death and they experienced it. I mean, I remember sharing with some people about um, my grandparents telling me that when they were young and someone passed away, this is in the Chicago area, they would have this uh, porch-like room and 
they would keep the body that had passed away there and people would come to the home to view it. Is that true? Can some of you remember that? Yeah, you're all shaking your head, a few of you at least. We don't do that. And I was sharing that with some people who were younger and they looked at me with a sense of shock. Well, that's kind of how I felt as I read this because life was so raw. But there's another thing as I read these things that I thought were interesting. Um, and it was the reason they shared it was such a sense of, 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 of openness and in, in, in such um, in such a maybe frightful macabre way is because there were some vital lessons that needed to be learned because there were some real truths that were out there that if they didn't pay attention to could cause some great danger in their life. So, for example, the, the story of Little Red Riding Hood. No sooner had Red Riding Hood entered the wood than she met a wolf. Red Riding Hood did not know what a wicked animal he was and felt not the least afraid of him. So you, you start out right away in this book and he's sharing with you very much, this girl's pretty naive. And instead of following her mother's instructions and actually going directly to grandma's house like she was supposed to, it says that she went off and went out of her way into the wood to gather flowers and she walked on farther and farther till she was quite deep in the wood. And you can see how kids would be going, wow, yeah, I can see that. And you know how the story goes, eventually... She ends up seeing grandma, it's a wolf, going to get killed. Huntsman comes in, saves her, and it ends with this. Ah, she thought, I will never go out of the way to run in the wood again when my mother has forbidden me. Good night, kids. <laughs> they knew how to instill a lesson, right? Well, you may wonder why I'm sharing this with you. I think Jesus knew how to instill a lesson. You think about it. He's been sharing story after story, which has been pretty interesting. He starts out with the crowds, then he goes into the house, and he starts sharing with the disciples. Now he comes to the end of all the stories he's telling, and he tells one last story, and he tells a story about a net. And I think he tells it just like you do with fairy tales, because he wants to give you a warning. He wants to encourage you. He does this all out of love. He wants us to live with wisdom and understanding in the light of what we know about the truths of reality. And so he shares from the heart of God to encourage us to enjoy God's love and to experience all the goodness of this life he intends for us to experience this day and forever. Again, if you read these stories, there are stories that are taken from everyday life. It's stories that people would be familiar with. They would be standing by a lake or the Sea of Galilee. They would be towns as he would share these different places. And they were well aware of fishing. They were towns that were on the side of hills where they would be well aware of farming. And he would share many stories. Stories about sowing and reaping and weeds and wines and vines and fruit as well as about fishing and fishermen and, and fish and boats and nets. Because they could relate to it. He was basically saying, if you want to see the, the reality, the truth of what this existence and what this means to live in the presence of God and to know this God, here are some things that it's like. And then he would just share one of these common everyday experiences. And so each parable begins with the kingdom of God is like. They were looking for the kingdom to come. Here was the problem. The people were looking from the Old Testament for the kingdom to come in finality. That God would show up and, and all his army of angels would come and the good would be separated from the bad and they would be thrown and cast out and these political powers that were spoiling everything would be removed and the king who was supposed to be king would set up his kingdom and they would rule forever and ever and they would live happily ever after but the reason is we've been studying matthew we come to chapter 13 
Jesus sees that they still don't get it, so he has to speak in stories. He has to tell them, hey, you guys, you have to understand, this, what you're looking for, is not yet to come. The king actually has come. His kingdom he has brought. But he begins and he says, but it comes to those whose hearts are like soil, who when they hear God, they, they encounter this God, their hearts are open, they receive this God, and if their soil is good, they'll take more of God and His Word and the reality of His kingdom into their life so that that will become a part of who they are, that they will become like the King Himself. And he goes on, he shares stories about the weeds, and he says, you know, during this age that you've been waiting for, this one to come, there's going to be good and bad together. Just recognize this. Your job is not to separate them. That'll happen at one point. But like a mustard seed and like leaven, the kingdom of God will come into your heart if you're willing to, like a seed, and it will begin to permeate and grow in you and through you and throughout others who desire to walk within the will of God. And there is this... He says people will find it sometimes like the person who's just going along life and the grace of God smacks them in the face and they find a treasure. And for others, they through religiosity and all kinds of other means are seeking God with all their heart and all of a sudden they come across this pearl, this thing of such great value and great price that everything else is considered dumb compared to knowing and encountering the living God in their life, which is another act of grace. And so now he comes here and he says, let me just sum it up and here share this story. And this story is about a final day, verses 47 through 50. It's about a final question he asks his disciples, verse 51. And then I, he kind of gives a final encouragement in verse 52. That's kind of how I can break this down in my mind. In verses 47, he says, you know, in light of the future, I want you to be wise. Now, as I studied commentaries and I studied some messages from other pastors, there's this temptation for pastors to say, here's what this is all about. It's all about someday out there, so you need to turn or you're going to burn. That's kind of what they talk about. They talk about the fact that this is given, in a sense, so that you will understand, so that you'll live life the way you should today because of what's coming up. Now, I'm not denying that. That's That's a true message that God calls us to understand that there's an eternity. There's a forever that we are being invited into if we open our hearts and we find this pearl, this treasure, by the grace of God, walk in it by His goodness and love, by what He's done on the cross. But what He's getting at here is not about the idea of turn and burn. He's saying there is the reality of this coming. But in the light of that, I want you to understand what your responsibility is. Does that make sense? The reason I say this is this, if you look at this passage of Scripture, you have to ask yourself, who is the audience Jesus is talking to here? He's not talking at this point to people who are outside the kingdom. He's actually in verse 13, in chapter 13, verse 36, we're told that Jesus left the crowd. He went into the house where he was with his disciples and they turned to him and said, explain to us. So we're actually in the house and he's sharing with his disciples at this point. And what Jesus was trying to share with them is this. Here's the reality, you guys. You need to understand that I am setting up my kingdom. My kingdom comes through a cross and through that cross, all people will be invited into it who are open to humbling themselves, receiving forgiveness, acknowledging their need and opening their heart so that they would receive this gift of of life which would put them into a relationship with God today and forever. But what I'm talking to you disciples about is this is about what is today. This is what's happening now. This is what I want you to be aware of at this point. And so why would Jesus speak about the kingdom to come? 
so that people wouldn't live with just a decision here as almost a fire insurance policy, but they would live in the abundance and fullness of a life he's provided today with, that you and I can experience in relationship to God. And let me share with you, that is the most attractive message to people. Love draws people towards God. Fear, God uses it. There's no doubt. It's usually one of the lowest forms of motivation. For a little child who's sticking their hand up on on a hot grill, you may slap it in order to instill a sense of fear that you don't want to do that. But at a certain point, if there's understanding, you seek to very lovingly teach. Right? So Jesus is talking to mature followers who are, who are seeking after him or following after him. And he's saying, the reality is true. There is a place you don't want to go to. But here's what I want to share with you. You have been given a life to live. And that life is to be lived in such a way that it is so attractive. And it begins to, in a humble way, vulnerable way, just like Jim and Mary. You, you let your guard down. You say, we blew it. And you understand that God has manifested and worked in such a way to change things. That people go, I want that. I like that. So Matthew, he says, once again, the king is like this net let down. And we read that. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up to the shore. They sat down. They collected the good and bad and the fishes. The good fish in the baskets threw the bad ones away. On that day, he's talking about a dragnet. There was three different ways that people fish. You could fish with a line and hook, just like we do today. You could fish with a group of fishermen out of a boat where you could take this net, and around the net would be these weights, and you would throw it out, this kind of round kind of a net. It would go down to the bottom so that the, the outer circumference of it would go and sink fast, and the the inner part of the net would float up high so it would catch the fish. You would draw it in. If you got lots of fish like it happened one time when Jesus was with his disciples when he told them to throw it out on one side of the boat, they had so much fish they couldn't even pull it in. They had to have another boat help pull it into the boat. He's not talking about this kind of fishing. He's talking about something different. He's talking about the great fishermen of God in the sense that these drag nets, often you would take that net and you would tie it to one boat or to another boat and you would drag it over an area. Some nets, historians say, were a half mile in length. They were so large that what they would do is they'd actually tie it to shore and the boat would go out and make the circumference around and drag it until it finally come back to shore again. Then they would haul it in with the workers and they would pull everything that was in its path. The idea was that the net was immense and it was all-inclusive. And when he would pull that net in, it would be filled with both all kinds of fish, all kinds of things. And as they pulled this in with all of it, they would separate those good which were useful for eating and bad or worthless, if you have it in a translation, means that which was not usable or in any way could be you know, used for eating or some other things. And they would be tossed aside. And Jesus makes this very plain. That's what it will be like at the end of the age. That's what the kingdom of God is like. He's making this point in this passage of Scripture in a general way. This is what happens on the last day. If you go through Matthew, you get to chapter 25. He has a couple more stories about the end times, and maybe we'll get there through this series at some point. But he talks about the ten virgins and the fact that they need to be ready. At one point he talks about the sheep and the goat, which when you look at the sheep and goat, this is the one where he he actually uses the basis for judgment. But that's not what he's doing here. 
The focus here is on the state of the kingdom when the judgment occurs. Jesus is reiterating what he told in the parable of the weeds, that both bad and good coexist together in this time that we're living in. But the emphasis is on the simple fact that this division won't occur till the end. Now what I find is interesting is Jesus helping them to understand that the kingdom has brought at this time now allows for good and bad to exist together just like the fish in the Sea of Galilee. But God has commanded his angels, you note that, it's his angels that do this work to, dra- to take the dragnet through the sea of history, if you can kind of imagine it, and over time pull to the shores of eternity where all people will someday end up and the angels will separate those who are righteous and those who are wicked and those that he goes on to share with us who have been wicked or bad. He has, he has a place. Now here's what I want to share with you. Here's what we don't know. We don't know in this time who's truly in or out. And it's not really our job to be God to make that judgment. It's our job to share in a moment. I'll share with you what our job is. But it's not our job to do that. D.A. Carson, a a New Testament scholar that I had in seminary, just a brilliant man, says, Whereas the parable of the weeds, which was before this, focuses on the long period of the reign of God, during which the terrors exist with the wheat, and the enemy has large powers... The parable of the net simply describes the situation that exists when the last judgment takes place. The kingdom embraces good fish and bad fish, and only, listen to this, only the final sweep of the net sorts them out. Isn't that interesting? Here's what we do know. Both the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net speaks about a final day, that there is a separation. The word judgment means to make distinct and to separate. And he does tell each of us this, that we must examine the soil of our hearts in which regard are we in relationship with God through Christ. And he says the separation is final. It's permanent. It's eternal. Listen to what verse 49 says. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. He is basically making a very clear statement. There is, he, there's no teaching in Scripture about reincarnation. There is no teaching that there's a rebirth into a new round of life so that if you get good karma, eventually you'll, through cycle after cycle, get to this place of union with God. It's not the case. He says it's a net that drags throughout history. At some point at the shore, it will end at the end of time, and at the end of time, all souls will be brought to that edge. That's what he's giving the picture. The second thing you need to understand here is the separation, he says, is freely chosen. It's determined by how you respond to the grace of God. It's not about your performance. It's not about all those things. He basically begins this whole thing by saying there's a sower who sows into soil and there is soil that receives God, the Word, an encounter with Him and His grace and His goodness. And that soil responds. And when that soil responds, the kingdom begins to move through it and permeate through it and begins to change that life. What happens at that point is they have found this treasure or they have found this pearl that is of great price and they hang on to that because they know their value is in that in a sense. They know that it is in what Jesus has done and what He has done on the cross, His grace and God's goodness and anything in Him. It's not about me. And he basically says that this life, there will be a separation to come, and it is freely chosen. We are all, each of us, responsible being. God has given us a will, a will to choose. We will be responsible for our choices. That's what makes us human beings. 
I've heard people that say, well, how can a good and a loving God in any way ever separate and throw some people into eternal foreverness apart from Him? And I can only answer this. Have you ever tried to love someone who won't let you love them? It's just, it's just human nature. That's how God has created us with wills. And so not only does He say is it a final thing and that it's freely chosen, but He also goes on and says the separation for some will be terrible. I mean, he doesn't mince his words here at all. He's very graphic. I, I think Grimm's brothers don't have a thing on Jesus at this point in verse 49. He says, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in the light of the final day, the kingdom to come, what we don't know is like only God and Heidi Klum know who is in or out, right? That's kind of a little joke for those of you who watch popular TV. But what we do know is this. We are responsible for our choices, and our choices have consequences. And we have before us a God, every person. Every person in this world has some revelation of God in which our hearts can respond to. And our job is not to judge. My job is not to figure out what your personal destiny is. My job is to merely figure out what's going on with my soil, of my own soul. And as I begin to understand that, respond to the Spirit of God in relationship to all those who have been placed around me. Now here, catch this though. This is really important. Because it is our job. It is our job to share this good news with every person. So that every person has an opportunity to respond. And the reason I say this is because the final question that Jesus leads to here is this. Jesus has finished all these stories. He gets done. He asks a question. It's the only time in all of chapter 13 that he looks at anyone and says, do you get it? He looks at these disciples and he says, do you guys get it? And they say, yes, look at Matthew 13, 51. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? And they replied, yes. Or as Peterson in the message says, Jesus asked, are you starting to get a handle on this? I like that because it's a little more true to what's going on. You ever, you ever explain something and, and, and maybe your spouse has shared this with you and, now I, you know, and they explain it and it's real clear and you go, yes. And then moments later you blow it and do it wrong. I mean, think about it. The disciples, bright-eyed, looking at Jesus. Jesus says, you get what I've just told you. You get the fact that the kingdom, the presence, and the power of God is here, available in your life, that you can have this experience with Him. And as you live with Him, your life has the opportunity to be, to be sown into the lives of other people. Do you guys get it? And they look at Him and go, yes. And then just a little bit later, ten of them desert Him. One of them denies Him and the other betrays Him. So, Good luck. I can look you all in the eye and say, do you get it? And you all go, yeah. But we are so steeped in the patterns of our own selfishness. We are so steeped in the patterns of getting things want, what we want done, that we fall into this again. And praise God we have a gracious God. Praise God we have a God who will come to us and who will even take stories to share with us that are warnings that are very, very much frightful. They seem kind of graphic and gruesome. And you look at it and you go, but can it really be? But Jesus says, yeah, that's the way it is. And I want to share with you one other thing. He goes from the question to a final encouragement, which is a story. So let me tell you one more story. Do you guys have time for one more? One more story. Jesus turns to him, because I think this is the, kick, the one that kind of kicks it all into place. I think this is the reason why Matthew put this where it is right here. And Jesus says in verse 52, he says, And therefore every teacher of the law, and teacher of the law was a scribe, or a scribe was one who was responsible for the understanding of the will of God. So put it in this way, anyone who is um, responsible for understanding or, or being able to dig deep into what is the will of God about, that's what the teacher of the law is. 
who has become a disciple, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now let me just share with you, the the interpretations on this are legion. They're all over the board. But I'm, as I look at this in the context, I personally think it's rather simple. I think when you look at all of chapter 13, what Jesus has been doing, he's been seeking his disciples, I think he's pretty simple here. First you need to note that the, the comparison the kingdom of heaven is like is not about the kingdom of heaven. It's about the follower or the disciple in the kingdom of heaven. He's basically saying the person who is a follower who has the kingdom of heaven now as a seed beginning to be planted in him is like a scribe who is one who is responsible and the teacher of the law who has in their heart the storeroom of experiences with God that they are to share. Followers of Jesus, he says, are like owners of a house. And if you own a house, you know what you can do. If someone comes to you and says, you know, I'd like some sugar, you can go into the cabinet and you can give them sugar. If someone says to you, hey, I'd really like to use your shovel, you can go out in the garage and get the shovel. You can go to any place, you can get old or new things. He's basically saying each and every one of you, and the word he uses scribe here is interesting, because scribes in that day were like PhDs in seminary. And so for them to even hear the fact that you're calling a scribe as a follower and and I've got now this kingdom of heaven now in my life and and he's making this huge statement. He's saying, you guys, each and every one of us, if you shake your head, yes. Did you shake your head, yes, to understanding this? Each and every one of you are like scribes. You're like seminary students to the rest of the world. And you go, well, how can that be? Because when the kingdom of heaven comes into you and you have an encounter with God, you have an experience with God in your heart. And in the Word of God, the word storeroom means this idea of heart. You'll find often when he speaks of the storeroom, he's speaking about what's in our heart. He is saying this simply. You are a person, as a follower of Jesus, have the the kingdom of heaven now beginning to, to move in and through you. You have an encounter with God, and in your heart are stored experiences with God that you have been given for the purpose of sharing with others in light of what's to come. Does that make sense? It's really when you kind of get this down, you go, boy, Jesus is brilliant. Right? He, he looks at you and he says, guess what? I'm asking each of you disciples, you don't have to enroll in seminary. You just live in the presence of God and you begin to experience now a relationship with Him as you encounter Him day in and day out and you encounter other people around you. You don't have to make judgments of whether they're going to heaven or hell. You merely need to take out of the storeroom of your heart experiences you've had with God on the right occasion at the right moment by the leading of the Holy Spirit and share it with Him. Now what I love about this is that God always says in His Word that we're called to be witnesses. We're called to be witnesses. We make it so difficult. And you may feel that you have nothing to share with others, but that is truly a lie. It's a lie to keep you from sharing from the storeroom of your heart and experiences you've had with God so that others, someone else can benefit. Your being a witness is not to, to shame and guilt you into doing it. It's out of love. If you know something that can help someone else, out of love you just want to help them. And I'm going to make it really clear how that happens in a second. You have a storeroom of experience that God wants you to bring into the lives of others because of your encounter with God. The Bible says in 1 John 5.10 that those who believe in God have the testimony or witness of God in them. 
First Peter 2.9 tells us that we were chosen by God to do His work and to speak out for Him to tell others of the night and day difference He's made in you. The essence of witnessing is merely sharing the encounter experiences you've had with God with others. Now think about it. When you think of a courtroom, the witness does what? The witness only comes up and shares what they've experienced. They're not called to defend. They're not called to explain. They're not called to do anything other than say what they saw or what they heard or what they experienced. Witnesses merely share that. Their job is not to prove the truth. It's not necessarily to defend the truth or press for a verdict. All that is the work of an attorney, right? An attorney comes in, and the attorney's job is then to take that which has been witnessed and to apply it for some kind of conviction or to apply it for some kind of truth to be told or for something to be known or experienced. And what we often think about is that we have to do that part. That's the work of God's Holy Spirit in someone else's life. It is not our job. What we don't know is who's in or out. It's just our job when we come across someone who needs this life experience encounter that you've had with God for you just to tell them. It's that simple. And we forget that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, not you'll be my attorneys. And we got a whole lot of people running around like attorneys. And it's not their job. Because of God's work in your life, because of the Holy Spirit who is alive in and around us, Every person here is equipped. You are scribes. You are seminary PhDs with encounters with God to be shared with someone else. Now, let me just share with you questions that I think might make this real. I want you to ask yourself, because here are some of the occasions God will put before you. What has God taught you from failure? When you see someone near you who's gone through failure, it may be through failure that you came for the very first time to realize that you're not perfect, that your performance can't measure up, and you realize through your own failure and your own sin that you need the grace of God, you need the love of God, and that He loves you for who He is and out of who He is for you because of what He's done on the cross. That's a great opportunity to say, you know, let me just share with you. I failed big time. It might be an opportunity to say, you know, I failed in my marriage. And here's what God taught me about it. Just ask yourself questions. What what has God taught you from a lack of money? Just so Jim and Mary standing up here and so courageously sharing how God had worked in their life and what God taught them through their own choices with regard to money. That's a great opportunity to share about God. It's just a matter of witnessing. It's not being attorneys. It's being those who share experiences. What has God taught me from pain or sorrow or depression? What has God taught you through waiting? Anybody had a wait here? What has God taught you through illness? What has God taught you through disappointment? Do you think people around you go through those experiences? We make witnessing something that's so difficult. It isn't all you need to do is say, you know what, I had this encounter with God. And you have this storeroom of encounters so that when this kind of person comes before you in this kingdom age, it's not your job to go, boy, are you going to heaven or hell? No, here's something I want to share with you so that you can know this God loves you. And he does. And my, my guess is that each one of you, if you've had an experience, an encounter with God, are far more ascribed than you realize. And you're just called to do the loving thing. So Jesus ends this. I think it's such a cool thing. He stops and he says, you know what, guys? Everyone's looking for this end point. Everyone's down here. Everyone's head's down here. There's all kinds of messages turn and burn, and they're not making a difference in a whole lot of people's lives because they're saying, 
you know what, I don't even know about that. We live in this relative age. It doesn't mean you don't tell them about it, but the thing that's going to hook them in their life is your storeroom of experience with God. Because that's where they are in their point of need. And I believe where the Holy Spirit can come in and begin to work in their heart. Now, i got to share with you, too. I sat at the bedside of people who are ready to go to heaven. I want to tell you, when you tell them about there's an eternity forever, you got a captive audience. Isn't it amazing that when you come to those points, you're so much more open? My, my friend um, from seminary I roomed with, 53 years of age, just about two weeks ago, had a massive heart attack. And uh, his dad died in his 50s. His oldest brother died in his 50s, all of them from heart attacks. They, his heart stopped 30 times. 30 times they had to hit it to get it going again. And he made it. The doctors all go, it's a miracle. He wrote me this morning. I got an email from him because he's in a place now where he can write. He said, I had a rough 12 days. But God, for whatever reason, poured out his amazing grace on my life and gave me another shot at life. And here's his next line. I'm so thankful to spend more time with my wife and kids. We don't know when our time is going to end, but we do know this, that in this time where we're living right now, we have people close to us, wife, kids, husbands, friends, people we work with, who God has placed in our path, and we have a great opportunity to pull out of the storm of our house those things which might make an eternal difference. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these words, that you would take what you have said in your word and apply it to our hearts. We shake with our head, yes. And yet at the same time, I know I will walk out of here and miss it and blow it and fail. And yet I have communed with you and I know that it's through your blood and through the cross, your body broken, that I live in your grace and your mercy in all you call us to do is to continue humbly to walk in a vulnerable way, our lives before others. And so, God, may we be able to do that and share what you've placed in our hearts that others might know the great joy and experience of the freedom of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.